I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and my guest is Brad Warner. I was kind of half-assed about it when I first started, in that I didn't, um, I, I didn't keep up with it every day or whatever, and I, I'd, I'd, I'd get frustrated with it and just stop. So whenever I'd stop, everything would just feel wrong. You know, and I'd have to go back to doing this stupid practice, which which wasn't producing anything like I thought enlightenment was supposed to be. But I had to go back and do it anyway, or else I'd feel like, you know, terrible. And that was that was the practical use of it. And and I looked at other, you know, I don't want to badmouth other meditation practices, but I looked into some of the other stuff, and it all seemed to be very idealistic or based on something, some kind of goal or something that I could never quite understand. And what was great about Zazen is there wasn't any goal. You're just sitting there. You know, you don't make any anything of it. Brad Warner was ordained in the Soto School of Zen Buddhism. Brad began studying Zen in the early 1980s in Ohio under Tim McCarthy, whose teacher was Kobun Chino, who was brought to America by Shunryu Suzuki, author of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He was the bassist for Zero Defects, a hardcore punk band. He fulfilled a lifelong dream and got a job in Tokyo, Japan, with the company founded by the special effects man behind the Godzilla films. Welcome, Brad. Thank you. And you've written a book called Sit Down and Shut Up. Yeah, that's right. Punk Rock Commentaries on Buddhism. And you're a bass player. We were talking a little bit before the interview got started. One of the things that we were talking about was, because uh, I played rock and roll too, you said that you were up in the band playing music and you disappeared into the music. Well, yeah, that's kind of one of my first experiences where I later related it to Zen practice. But when I was younger, this happens when you, when you play music. If you're playing in front of a, a crowd especially, even if it's not a good crowd sometimes, you, you just have to leave yourself behind during that process. You can't, the minute you start thinking about what you're playing or what you're going to do next or any of that, you're going to lose it. So you learn by trial and error that you have to put yourself into a specific place if you're going to play well, uh, in which you just let go of everything. And that I later related to what I did in um, Zen practice, because that's also uh, what you do in Zen. So did you play music first, or were you involved with Zen first? Oh, yeah. I, I, uh, I started playing guitar when I was like 14 or, mm-hmm. or maybe younger, and just played in bands for years. And it wasn't until I was like 18 or 19 that I started doing Zazen, because I didn't know anything about it. So the music definitely was something I did first. And it was something that I was more uh, committed to initially, because I'd say during the 80s I was trying to make it as a struggling indie rock musician with a band, and we put out some records. And in Ohio, right? In Ohio, yeah, yeah. So you wrote a book on the Shobo Genzo. Yeah. Tough book, man. Sure did, yeah. It's a tough book. It's a it's a uh, 13th century book written by an author, a monk named Dogen in Japan, and it was very, it's an interesting history that book has. I had to actually look it up uh, in order to write my book about it, but the book has been tremendously influential, but it was 
not for most of the time that it existed. For in the 13th century, he wrote it, Dogen wrote this thing out, of course, longhand, because there wasn't computers and printing presses and things like that. And he, it was copied for a few of his closest monks, and, and people kind of knew about it, so it was never really a lost book as such. But it was never widely circulated. The first actual printed edition of it that was circulated beyond that circle of monks came in the 1600s. So it was 400 years it took for it to ever get printed, and that version even went out of print for until the 1800s. Uh, and that version didn't stay in print long, and it wasn't really until the 20th century that the book was rediscovered even in, by Japanese Buddhist scholars and kind of became a popular book. How have you found it useful? The, to me, the test of any book like that is what, how it is useful. So that, that's um, my teacher um, who ordained me is a guy named Gudo Nishijima, and he wrote a translation, an English translation of Shobo Genzo. He and one of his students got together and made this English translation. And even now, I think it is the only complete English translation uh, from of all 95 chapters because mostly there are other translations but they mainly the authors will pick their favorite chapters and eliminate others and so uh, Nishijima's translation presents the whole thing and he used to do lectures about it and I would attend these lectures that he'd, he'd talk about this book and I decided at one point that if he's going to talk about this book and if he's going to go to all this trouble to write the English version well, I'm going to read the whole thing. So I read it and didn't quite understand it and read it again and kind of understood it a little better and read it again. And I probably read it three or four times all the way through and finally got uh, a feel for the book and found that it was really, really useful stuff. But, of course, it being in uh, 13th century Japanese and even the best English translations are difficult going. But I thought that it was saying things that needed to be said more, more widely to more people. So you found them to be really directly useful for yeah. you. Yeah, it's very practical. He was a very practical guy. One of the hallmarks of his, his talk is it isn't just a lot of philosophical speculation or anything like that. It's practical instruction. In fact, I, I didn't write about this in my book. But there is a, an entire chapter of Shobo Genzo dedicated to using the toilet. And it's, it's in, in extreme detail about how, yeah, how to use the toilet. And we used to, my wife um, posted that up. She stuck it on the wall in our, in our bathroom. It was funny. In your book, you mentioned that Dogen has four main points. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is, um, this is Nishijima Sensei's take on Shobo Genzo is that Dogen looks at everything from four points of view, which is uh, first he kind of looks at it from the idealistic point of view, then takes the materialistic point of view, then looks at it from the point of view of action, and looks at it from the point of view of reality itself. And this is all very arcane and philosophical and, and so on. When you say it like that, it sounds very dry. But I found that really useful because uh, real life is like that. You, we tend to differentiate between the 
idealistic or idea side, mental side of life and physical side of life and say this is this and this is that. And Buddhism always says that that mental, physical, spiritual or mental, spiritual, idealistic, whatever you want to call it side and the material side are the same thing, which is very, very difficult for most people to latch on to or, or to grasp because we don't think that way. And it may be that we can't quite think that way. At least, maybe our brains aren't able to conceive of these two ideas at the same time. So we we want to always separate it, and that's that's the source of a lot of our our problems and difficulties. And I, that's why I think the book is really is really really useful because he he he's very contradictory. Dogen is so he he'll say something, and then and then in the next sentence he'll completely contradict what he just said. And that, that is the source of a lot of uh, confusion. Are there some examples you remember? Well, um, hmm, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I'm not great with that. But um, I'm trying to think of one. But what, what happens a lot of times is uh, when people write about Dogen, they'll try to smooth over these contradictions or try to make them fit together. And they don't. And that's a, that's a big mistake. So, so he'll give counter-instruction. They'll say, do yeah, one well, thing say, and then... Yeah, because when you look at it from the point of view of, a, of ideas, things look one way. When you look at it from the point of view of, of purely a materialistic way of looking at things, it looks completely different. And it's not that one is right and the other is wrong. It's that there are two different ways. It's like saying, you know, the, the, the quarter has George Washington on it, or no, it has an eagle on it. Oh, you know, right, it's, right. it's the same thing. But you can get confused into arguing these points. And I think that's a real serious problem in, in human society today is we're arguing over a lot of things that don't need to be argued about because it's, we're just looking at the same thing from two different sides. And this that people get so invested in each yeah. of those sides, man. It's just yeah. it's really, really intense. Is there some examples that you found when you first began to study the Shobogenzo? Um, hmm. Well, how has it affected your life practically? It's been... One of the things my teacher likes to say is that he... A lot of people practice uh, Buddhism. A lot of people practice Zazen. And Which his, is a sitting meditation. Yeah, Zazen is sitting meditation that you do in, in, a, in a Zen temple or whatever. Or, or, or at home, home. Yeah. 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 And it's... Uh, a lot of people do that, but there isn't a whole lot of philosophical basis. And he always insists that we should understand the philosophical basis of it as well, which I find interesting because he thinks it's not quite enough just to do the practice. You should understand the, the philosophy behind it. Because we are <clears throat> we value our mental side or our brain or intellectual side, so we like to have something to to be able to explain it. And he always used to say, you know, write about Buddhist philosophy. So that's what I tried to do. Um, and try to make it as practical as possible. But it's from a rock and roll point of view. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't get rid of that. Yeah, the subtitle is Punk Rock Commentaries on Buddha, God, Sex, Truth, Death, uh, and Dogen's Treasury of the Right Dharma Eye. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the punk rock side comes from that's where I entered into Buddhism. I, I was interested in, when I was in my late teens, I found out about this whole hardcore scene that oh, yeah. was going on. And I was really disgusted with rock as it 
existed in the late 70s well, it turned corporate into rock and all corporate this. rock and then that was after disco i mean i yeah, got yeah. out of it before disco you know but yeah yeah and all that stuff was just so useless yeah and i thought i was listening to a lot of stuff from the 60s and i was very interested in playing guitar and and I thought, well, I've missed it. I missed it all. Rock is finished, and, and it's, it's over. It's something from the past, right? Um, and then a friend of mine took me to see these hardcore punk bands, and there was such tremendous energy. And the best, the best band was the band I ended up joining. It was called Zero Defects, and their whole, all their music just sounded so intense and so fast. I, I wasn't even aware until I joined the band that there were actually songs because I just thought they were just going up there and, and just straight out making noise. But actually they had verses and choruses and occasionally... Well, and there was musical uh, structure, yeah. but it, was some, it sounds like to me that you had found some real authentic yeah. expression. Yeah, that was the that thing. Was so, that was the key. That came out you know, of, of what had been so commercialized. Yeah, that was the key, because they were doing it because they wanted to do it, and they didn't care if anybody liked it. I mean, they, you know, they played to their audience and things, so yeah. they weren't completely aloof about it but they they didn't care if it was commercial they just wanted to to rock and the only way to do it was to just go at it with this kind of intensity you know we'd we'd play when I once I joined the band because I joined the band right after I'd seen them they lost their bass player so I became their bass player but uh, they you know they would play these sets or we would play these sets that'd be 20 minutes long and be exhausted after it because you just put so much into it you know it was like a normal band playing a two-hour set, you know. We'd just go... Yeah, but it was... When you were doing that, it was just... It was truthful expression. Like yeah. Like I was saying, authentic yeah. expression. Uh, we're going to have to take a quick break. Um, and before we started the interview, where you were telling me that you, um, you've got a blog? Yeah. What, how can people get to your blog? Yeah, the blog is Hardcore Zen, as one word, hardcorezen.blogspot.com. And that's the best place if you want to find out. That's got links to some of the other stuff I do. Because you've written another book, too, before this one. I wrote another book, and I write a weekly column for Suicide Girls, a website. Oh, that's cool. Suicide Girls website. Great. But that's all linked. Okay. Well, uh, we're going to take a short break, and uh, we'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And we're talking with my guest, Brad Warner, who has written a book called Shut (laughs) Shut Down. Sit Down and Shut Up. And uh, we're going to be right back after a, sh- a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And we are talking with my guest, Brad Warner, who has written a book called Sit Down and Shut Up. And it's uh, about your experiences um, with Zen Buddhism and the association you had with punk rock. Yeah. And before the break, you were telling us about uh, when you got started in the, ba- in the band and how... Um, having discovered that kind of music was really the only kind of authentic music expression of the time. Can you tell us some more about about what was it that really made it so authentic? I mean, you said you worked for, you know, played a 20-minute set and you felt like you'd been playing for two hours. Yeah, yeah, it was was really intense. And I think it was something that had to happen at the time. You needed to react to what the mainstream was doing. It's it's funny because I talked to... There's, there's still a punk scene, and and I think a lot of it's still valid, and a lot of the commercial stuff isn't, but that's a whole the other... Well, there's some metal thing. Yeah, I mean, there's, that, there's all right? kinds of stuff. But 
what what was really going on then is you had this huge powerful mainstream because you didn't have internet you didn't have all these other means of communication as you do and this today was early 80s yeah and so and so you had the huge you know the three tv networks and the you know whatever and all, reagan all pushing yeah and reagan all pushing this one agenda and somebody had to react against it and that that was our job you know i kind of look at it now as as uh, as just being something that that we had to do, and I just it felt like a compulsion. But the 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 sort of problem I found is I went into punk looking for this authentic, real uh, approach to life and everything else, and started getting to the lifestyle and living in the punk rock houses and the whole bit like you did. And I got disillusioned with it fairly quickly because it seemed like they weren't really taking it as far as it ought to go. They seemed to be stopping at a certain point. They they were they created this society or this subculture that looked very different from the overall culture, but they still had all the same problems and the same a lot of the same nonsense and politics and this and that that you get. Um, when people live together, you yeah. Mean? When people live together, oh, okay. or anything, you know, they, they, they. I didn't think they were taking it as far as they could. And when I found Zen, what I thought was, it seems like the same, going in the same direction, but going much further. Just really, really, really kind of. Hmm. It wasn't enough to just question society. You had to actually turn back and question yourself because. You had well, to realize how much of a reflection of society you are. You, know, you can't just say those guys out there and Reagan and everything else, those are the bad guys, because you're, you're really part of that. And that's a leap that many people didn't make, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. So Zen really opened a door for you that way. Yeah, very definitely. Just to say, okay, well, now i got to say, well, where, where's my responsibility with this? And seeing that responsibility at first was kind of scary, because you're going, oh, my God, that, that is... You know, this this society that I'm railing against is right here. And and if or in order to actually successfully topple it, I have to topple myself. <laughs> you know, I can't just go out there and blow up the White House, you know. I, I have to actually get into my own, you know get into your own stuff, man. Self and then and then find where that is all coming from. And that's that's tough. So you first uh, began with the man that uh, had translated the book? Uh, no, actually, book? my first uh, teacher was a guy named Tim McCarthy, and he was in Kent, Ohio. And uh, he and was... what a place for... Yeah, yeah. God, Kent, you know, where the, the where, shootings yeah, were. Yeah, where man. the shootings happened, yeah. I mean, I, I, I enrolled in Kent State in 1982, so that's 12 years after the shootings, but it still cast a big shadow. You know, and there were still people... Uh, in my hometown, who were saying, "Oh, Kent State, you can't go there. It's a radical school, you know, and all this stuff." It, it wasn't. It's just this. It never was. Even back then, it was just right. a state, you know, a state university. But some people got out of hand. Yeah, but um, yeah. So going there, he was a uh, Tim McCarthy had studied with uh, Kobenchino, who was uh, one of the people that Shunryu Suzuki brought over to help, along with Katagiri mm-hmm. uh, Roshi. Uh, to help him run the San Francisco Zen Center. And I believe that Tim had spent some time at San Francisco Zen Center, although I can't really tell his story competently. So. Right, right. But, um, but you learned from him. Yeah, I learned from him. And he was an interesting character and still is uh, because he didn't fit anybody's mold of what a Zen teacher is supposed to be like. He was a skinny white guy. 
I mean, the name Tim McCarthy, Timothy John McCarthy, you know, he's very you know, Irish background. Yes. Uh, Supposed to be guy. Japanese, man. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and at first, when I first heard that there's this guy named Tim McCarthy teaching a class about Zen, I thought, well, you know, this can't be very authentic. But it turned out that, that it really was, and that he was a really honest, serious guy that I could uh, relate to uh, the way he taught. And I have, you know, tremendous debt to, <laughs> to Tim for what So what was your first experience? Well, uh, it was going to his class. What, I, what had happened is, I, when I was a kid, we lived in Nairobi, Kenya, in Africa. And my dad worked for Firestone Tire Company, and they had a plant there. And, and uh, they sent him over there to kind of train people, I think is what his job was. But I came back, and well, well, when I was over there, there's a huge Indian population oh, in Oh, yeah. How, in long were Kenya. The, how long were you there? Just three years. Okay. But that's long enough, man. Yeah, when I, it was up. between the eight years, ages of eight and 11. So that's like, those wow. are big three years oh, for, yeah. for a person. So this was like a huge experience. And I got... I, I started seeing this Indian culture, and my dad's best friend was an Indian guy named Ramesh, and we go over to his house and see all these pictures of Indian gods and stuff. So when I got into college, I wanted to try to study something about uh, Indian religion. And what I found was there was nothing on offer at Kent State that quarter except a class in Zen Buddhism. And I thought, well, I'll try that. But my image of Zen was just like, you know, guys in black turtlenecks snapping their fingers and you know stuff like that i didn't really i didn't think it was really the kind of thing i'd be interested in but i took it anyway because it was the only thing on offer and when i tim read the heart sutra which is the big you know the big sutra the big main teaching of zen and it came to this line it says form is emptiness emptiness is is form form, and when i heard that i thought yeah you know i don't know what the hell that means but i want to know what that means and so I just became one of Tim's regular students. I don't, I don't even know if he ever thought of us as students. We were just these people that would come to his house and do this silly Zen, you know, Zazen, this meditation stuff that he had us do. And uh, I just kept up with that for, for 10 years or so, while meanwhile trying to get this indie band of mine. This was after the punk rock band. I had a band, yeah. called, Zero, uh, it was called, a band called Dementia 13, mm-hmm. which he made some records. Got some good reviews and oh, cool. got some press and stuff, but never could translate that into money. Uh, <laughs> well, so, yeah. yeah. So in order to, to try to solve that, my economic problem, I moved to Japan and got a job uh, teaching. And that was where I ended up meeting my uh, Gudo Nishijima, who's my, uh, my teacher, mm-hmm. uh, who you know, was stupid enough to ordain me as a Zen priest, <laughs> which I still don't know if he'll ever live that down. <laughs> Oh no, it's great, man! It's really wonderful. So, you coming back to the four mm-hmm. points of Dogen, uh-huh. you were able to take your idealism and your materialistic experience and put them into some action. Yeah, I guess so. I never really thought about it that way, but yeah, yeah, in to that, come to know reality. Sense, yeah, in that sense, yeah, because I was—I uh, mean, my my experience was very idealistic, but at the same time, you can't—you uh, can't. Live on idealism, well, no. usually. but um, but it's really kind of more even just the the experiential day to day moment to moment thing too. As as far as just the f- the the reason I stuck with this zazen practice was just because it worked 
And if it hadn't worked, I wouldn't be into it. But How I, was it, what was your experience with it working? Well, my experience was that I was kind of half-assed about it when I first started in that I didn't... Um, I, I didn't keep up with it every day or whatever, and I, I'd, I'd, I'd get frustrated with it and just stop. So whenever I'd stop, everything would just feel wrong, you know, and I'd have to go back to doing this stupid practice, which which wasn't producing anything like I thought enlightenment was supposed to be, but I had to go back and do it anyway, or else I'd feel like, you know, terrible. Yeah. You know, all the time. And that was that was the practical use of it. And and I looked at other, you know, I don't want to badmouth other meditation practices, but I looked into some of the other stuff, and it all seemed to be very idealistic or based on something, some kind of goal or something that I could never quite understand. And what was great about zazen is there wasn't any goal. You're just sitting there. You know, you don't make any anything of it. So how was that so it. useful? That's, you know... That's, it was useful. Somebody asked me the other day, and this is a question I keep thinking about, how would I answer this? Because <laughs> I don't know if my answer was that great, but she came to one of my talks and said, uh, well, what's the point? Uh, and, and I thought, well, what is the point? And the point is, there is no point, which, which sounds like very cute and zenny, but, but I'm not just saying that to be cute. It's the, the, the fact that one of the problems we have as human beings is we always want there to be a point to everything. And the point, what we think of as a point, is a kind of um, a way of sort of representing it to ourselves in our brains. And that's not that important. Some things can't be, most things can't be represented adequately in your brain, especially the secret of life or any of that stuff. You can't put that into words. The secret of life is is how how you're living now. It's it's not even that. It's 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 your life itself, and that's you can't you can't move anywhere from there. But but you don't need to move anywhere from there because this is great. <laughs> and that's and that's the point. Yeah. And we're going to have to take a quick break. Um, uh, you were saying that you have a blog, and yep. how can people get there? Uh, it's hardcore zen one word. Dot blogspot.com and that's uh, that links to some of the other stuff I do and uh, and that's where I write my rants <laughs> so if you want to see a, a rant cool alright well we're going to take a short break I'm Anthony Wright and I'm your host today on Attunement and we are talking with my guest Brad Warner who has written a book called Sit Down and Shut Up Punk Rock Commentaries on Buddha, God, Truth, Sex, Death and Dogen's Treasury of the Right Dharma Eye. So stay tuned, and we'll take a short break and be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest Brad Warner, who has written a book called Sit Down and Shut Up, Punk Rock Commentaries on Buddha, God, Truth, Sex, Death, and Dogen's Treasury of the Right Dharma Eye. God, that rolls off so nicely. Yeah, it's such a long title, (laughs) isn't it? It's really great. Well, before the break, we were talking about that there is no point to Buddhism. Yeah, no point. <laughs> no point <laughs> at all. What a big disappointment. So, um, well, yes and no. I mean, um, I guess the thing is, uh, you have found it to be useful. Yeah. And uh, um, into moving from the idealistic to the materialistic to, the, to taking action, mm-hmm. which is the sitting, which... Uh, facilitates your attending to reality. Yeah. Okay. 
In your book, you say why you talk about having a teacher, and, and why is having a teacher necessary? Yeah, this is a this is a tough point to talk about because every time, and I, I know this because this is what I thought when I would hear mm -hmm. that you have to have a teacher to study Buddhism, I would think, well, that's just Buddhist teachers telling you that to keep their you know to keep their thing going because you know of yeah they got to pay what, rent on the zendo yeah. you know yeah what kind of business are you going to be if if people can do it without a teacher and it really is just a simple thing but it's it is important um, you can get by for a while just doing the zazen practice by yourself and that that that's fine but as you get more in depth with it it becomes kind of necessary to have a sounding board or a good teacher is like a mirror he just shows you he or she just shows you yourself and that can be extremely useful i mean in the book i talk about it's like um you don't want to try to well do your makeup or comb your hair without looking in a mirror you need some kind of feedback uh, that helps. And what often happens, some of the worst cases, and of course these are very extreme things uh, that we have of sort of cult leaders. I always think of Shoko Asahara, which Americans don't know so well, but I lived in Japan when he was doing his thing. He's the guy that put the gas on the subways in Tokyo. People will remember to, that. Yeah, as a way to try to jumpstart the apocalypse, which was going to, you know, all this other stuff. But um, he's... Uh, there was a guy, I was reading an article, and I wrote about this in the book, about a guy who lives, a Zen priest who lives in the area where Shoko Asahara's followers were concentrated. And after Asahara, the whole thing blew up, you know, and he, he um, was arrested and, and the group was disbanded. A lot of them really had, they, I mean, they'd come to him because they had this real serious interest in Buddhism. He, he presented himself as a Buddhist teacher. And so they were looking for something to go, and this guy became kind of a de facto counselor to these these poor people who'd been followers of Asahara. And he'd read, in order to understand where they were coming from, he read a bunch of Asahara's books, oh, okay. which had dealt with his experiences that made him the great guru that he was. And at this Zen teacher reading these things was struck by the fact that the experiences that Asahara re reports as his great enlightenment experiences were things that had happened to him too, that had happened to the Zen teacher too. Only when they happened to him, he would bring them to his teacher. And the teacher would say, yeah, fine, whatever, just get back on your cushion and forget about it. You'll have all kinds of experiences. Uh, don't worry about them. Just keep at the practice. Yeah. Don't worry about all the fireworks and that's right. Fancy stuff that starts happening. Just sit there. And you can get one of the dangers that, if you can call it a danger of practice, is that you have these great experiences and and you have to deal with them. I was on the airplane here. I happened to pick up uh, uh, the other day. What's this guy say? William James, uh, Varieties of Religious Experience, which I'd never read, but I found it at a library bookstore for, book sale for a quarter, so I bought it. And I took it on the plane with me. And I read the chapter about mystical experiences, and, and in that he goes into all these different mystical experiences that people have. And, and I thought, yeah, there's a lot of uh, traditions in which those great mystical experiences are seen as the culmination of it. But the difference between that and Zen practices is, although those are part of the practice in Zen, they're not seen as the culmination of the practice. The culmination of the practice is once you've been able to forget about all that stuff. 
So I, I think that's a very interesting and important difference because on the one hand, as William James points out in his book, it's really important for us to acknowledge that there is this other side of life and to understand that all of us can, can touch that. And that's one of the things Buddha was about. But Buddha was also about that has to be part of your life then. It doesn't become this spectacular thing that sets you apart as some godlike being above everybody else or, yeah. or whatever it's supposed to be. Um, I remember the story true. about Buddha yelling at a, a, a guy who said, yeah, I've been studying 30 years to be able to walk across the river. And Buddha says, what are you doing that for? You can just take the ferry for a dime. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a great story because that really does uh, kind of sum up a lot of the, a lot of the ideas of, of Buddhism. And one of the things I see sort of don't like seeing in the, as Buddhism becomes popular in America is people are getting really interested in these sort of mystical experiences that they're supposed to have. And they, they're kind of going into it for that. And you might have that, but uh, I don't like the way it's sort of being advertised as, you know, hey, come in and get your mystical experience, because uh, that's not really the point. You, the point is to, is to also be able to go uh, beyond that. And, and going beyond that really means just coming right back here. That's the important thing. I, I was talking to a guy the other day, and he put it really well, and I can't remember what he said, but, um, but it's like even if you have your, your great mystical spiritual experience, you're always going to end up back here. That's, that's even in the uh, William James book. He says you know, these mystical experiences, one of the cat- characteristics of them is that they last a very short time, you know, half an hour or an hour or something like that, and then you're back. So what is the most important part of your life? It's not this, this great experience that you have over here, this peak experience. It's, it's the rest of it because that's where you're spending most of your time is just doing the dishes. Or I always mention doing the dishes and people who listen to me a lot are getting tired of it, but that's the, my most hated chore of all is washing dishes. So I always go back to that one. I, even, I would prefer to, to clean the toilets to doing the dishes because oh, I just hate doing dishes. But anyway... <laughs> But in your uh, book, you say yeah. there, there is no you yeah. to do the dishes. What do you yeah, mean, well, what do you mean there's no you? Know. Yeah, there's no me. Well, I mean, you can make a lot of that. I mean, there is you and there isn't you. It's when you, when you look at it from one point of view, you have to say, well, there is me because there's I have to do my dishes and I you know, can't use your credit card or, or uh, go drive off in your car or, or grab your girlfriend's bum or whatever, you know. It's, it, so there is, there is something you can call um, self, for want of a better word. But this, this is also one of the teachings in Buddhism is that this self is an illusion, which means that it's not, although, although we can point to something and call it self, it's, it's, it's an actually kind of an arbitrary thing. We think of it as being something solid with, with specific limits and, and a specific ending point and beginning point and so forth. But when you actually go and examine it, um, and this is what the Zazen practice is all about, closely, when you examine this self closely, it kind of 
I don't want to say falls apart, that's what I started to say, because it, it was never there to begin with. And that's, that's what you notice. You go, well, this is just a kind of a convenient fiction that works, and you don't want to totally trash it, but um, you have to know that it is a fiction. So that? Well, so that, so that you don't get into what, what happens to a lot of us is we're so intent on protecting this uh, fictional thing that we'll... I just, you know, I, I work in, a, uh, in the entertainment business. I, I work as a, uh, well, I won't go into the whole rigmarole, but it, it has me dealing with a lot of people, and I was just dealing with this guy at a film festival okay. to whom I had to give uh, a very, just very practical... Uh, there, was some, there was some communication difficulties, and I pointed out that uh, some of the communication difficulties came from his end, because they did. Um, and not to try to be egotistical, but the, the first thing that happens is he jumps up to try to protect this self that he didn't do wrong. And, and really, I'm not uh, making any sort of accusation. I'm just saying this is what we have to work on. But we always, I mean, I don't want to put that out there on him because I'm recognizing in him the same thing that I do. Um, but when that I try a, not to do. When you're playing a tune, you got to play in the same key. Yeah, and you got to know where the verses are. Yeah, and you you and have to the breaks and stuff. Yeah, you have to participate in this, and and you can do that a lot better if you realize that this thing that you're constantly protecting and defending is just a kind of a fiction, uh, which is the you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is there's definitely something, but uh, but it's not what you think it is. <laughs> Just to sound mm-hmm. crazy. Also, in your book, you write about the middle ground. Yeah. What's the middle ground? Well, the, uh, that's a big thing in Buddhism is the middle way or the middle ground. or the. It's always between the extremes. So uh, in, in Buddhism, well, the, the big example that's cited in Buddha's life story is that he went to very extreme lengths on both ends. As a, in the materialistic side, he was born a prince and he had all, all the kinds of comfort and hot babes everywhere and the whole bit. Uh, and he rejected that because he thought there was something more profound he wanted to study. But in rejecting that, he also made a mistake, which he kind of acknowledges, that he went too far in the other extreme of um, this very severe ascetic practice. And at one point during that practice, he realized that he wasn't any closer to enlightenment, but he was very close to death because he'd starved himself and and uh, and was living, you know, naked and all these horrible stories. Sometimes you'll see statues of Buddha in this state, and he looks like a skeleton, you know. Um, and at that point, he decided he wanted this wasn't working, and he accepted some food. Uh, and this is sort of the symbolic, or maybe not so symbolic, representation of him finding the middle way. So rather than going to the materialistic extreme or the spiritual extreme, uh, he found this way that was between the two. So you, you want to, to find that middle ground and without going too far in either direction. And that's difficult because we tend to want to go, you know, off, off in... And I suppose somewhere. that's really where the teacher is yeah. useful. Yeah. To facilitate, uh, to say, just sit. Yeah. Well, I want to do that. I just had a wonderful thing. That's nice. Just sit. Yeah. <laughs> well, but what? 
just sit. Yeah. <laughs> it's tough to be that guy, you know. Now I have to be that guy. Oh, okay. And sometimes you have these people telling you these great things, you know. Yeah, so um, how is that for you? Well, it's interesting. There's, a, there's an old Zen story about the, the Zen master wakes up and he says to his student, I just had the most interesting dream. And the student hands him a... a like a bowl of water, which means to wash your face, which, which is representing waking up. And so the student does this, and I always looked at that one way, but as a, as a teacher, I look at it a different way. I think, you know, if I'm the student, I probably want to hear my Zen master's dream. So I, I really kind of think the student was very cool in this case, that he, he's trying to go and go say, no, we got to stay with reality. You know. So the student handed the master the yeah, water. Yeah, oh, so this cool. is like the, the interesting twist on that uh-huh. story. But it's, it's tough to be that guy sometimes who has to tell people, you know, your great experience that you had. Just forget about it. Uh, but ultimately, that's the most important thing you can do um, sometimes. And I, I kind of look at it a whole different way now that I'm in the, you know, now that I am the guy in the robes, although I don't wear the robes very much, um, to, to have you to be the, the bad guy. I did, I did. Well, you did shave your head. Yeah, in order to be ordained, the first time I had to shave my head, but I looked like a, a Martian. So. Some people look really good with a shaved head. I'm not one of those people, so I grew it back. You know, I don't know. Well, and one of the things I wanted to mention that was very useful for me to kind of get my tail in gear for some stuff I had to do was uh, you talk about uh, cleaning your room. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're going to need to take a short break here in, in just a minute. But can you, can you talk to us about cleaning your room in the next couple of minutes here? Sure. Oh, you mean right now? Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, cleaning your room. Well, that, that's, uh, it's significant to me because it's always been a big problem. You know, uh, to do that. Yeah. And I, I grew up in one of those houses where mom was the one who cleaned up the room. And so when I got on my own, that, that became a big a hassle. But I think a lot of that uh, cleaning your room is is a very significant thing because you you need to put your own stuff in order before you can go out. And people are always worried about making a difference in the world or whatever. But you really need to put your own stuff in order. And also the, the process of cleaning your room is akin to Zen practice because you're just doing the one little thing at a time. Because I would look at my room and it was just a big trash pile and I'd look, oh, I, I can never clean this up. But, yeah. but the only way you can clean up your room is to actually go through each thing and put it away. And while you're in the process of it, it often seems, I mean, everybody has this experience of cleaning. It often seems like it's really going nowhere. And it's not until you spend an hour on it and you step back and you look and go, ah, you know, that's a lot better than it was. Yep, there's some it still doesn't, there. Yeah, it still doesn't match this ideal of perfection that you had when you started out, but it's a lot better. And that's, that's what we're really doing. And you've kind of gotten freed from that, uh, from that idealism there. Yeah. So we're going to take a short break, and um, you have a blog that people can yes. go to? Yes, it's hardcore zen, one word, dot blogspot dot com, and that links to the articles I do for Suicide Girls and, and some of the other stuff that I do. Great. Well, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest Brad Warner, who has written a book called Sit Down and Shut Up, and we'll talk about the rest of the title when we come back. Okay. 
So stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest Brad Warner. Uh, welcome back, Brad. Thank you. And Brad has written a book called Sit Down and Shut Up, Punk Rock Commentaries on Buddha, God, Truth, Sex, Death, and Dogen's Treasury of the Right Dharma Eye. Um, and we were just talking about how it makes a difference um, to just do the smallest thing in, in, uh, in cleaning your room. Yeah. And that uh, there is uh, some progress when, uh, when you step back. Well, yeah, I mean, the Zen, Zen practice, if you have, if you go into it with an idea, like a lot of people will go into these practices with an idea of enlightenment or some kind of great spiritual experience they're going to have. And often when you do the practice, one of the big stumbling blocks people have is they feel like they're doing it wrong because they're not having these experiences. And these experiences, although they happen, are fairly rare and they take time to develop. So um, it's... In the in to use the metaphor of cleaning your room, it's just doing the little thing uh, makes a difference, even though you might not notice the difference in such a big way. That's what I noticed with the practice. It was just the fact that there was this little difference every day as I kept working at it, and which you missed when you didn't. Yeah, what I, which I missed when I didn't, and which was this kind of rapid maturation process, you know, that that happened. I don't know, I'm still fairly immature, I still get... Uh, but anyway. Um, but yeah, so so the cleaning the room is, uh, is a real good metaphor, I thought, of that, for that. How you've just moved the problem from over here, from one spot to another. Um, and... And that isn't ultimately terribly useful because you still have the problem you need to attend to. You haven't solved it yet. So the only way to do to really fix the things that need fixing is to go after them in this fairly slow, dogged way. But in reality, it's not that slow. You're you're undoing. You know, if you think about how society, societal condition, even in the individual person, is the result of millions of years of of stuff, uh, you're really going through it. If you can get through a bunch of that in, in a decade, you're making incredible progress. Um, and we don't realize that because we're, especially now, because our society is so high-paced, you know, if something isn't done in three minutes, oh my God, you know, what are we going right. to do? But um, people have a short attention span. Yeah. Well, but really, you know. Well, but I mean, and when you're, when you're learning the tune, it takes a little while to learn oh, the tune. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. When you're, when you're playing music, you have to be able, if you're going to start on an instrument, you have to be prepared that you're going to suck at it for, for a while yeah. until you get good. And if you're not prepared to go through that period of sucking at it, you're never going to get good. Right. And that's, that's but there's the, the enjoyment of, yeah. just, of just being with it. Though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes that's that's enough, and 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 sometimes you can make a good tune when you're when you're still kind of sucky at it, and that's nice too. But you just keep, but you keep at it. One of the things that I remember from earlier, what we talked about earlier, like in the I think it was the Lotus Sutra that you said, uh, form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. Um, what is emptiness, and why uh, am I responsible for it? <laughs> emptiness, emptiness is a very difficult word because when it was when Buddhist books were first started to be translated into into English or into European languages in general, they didn't understand this concept of emptiness, so they tended to equate it with the, what they understood as this kind of bleak, 
sort of horrible nihilistic or nihilistic, I don't know how to pronounce it properly, uh, attitude. And it's really not like that. And I think the first clue that people had that it wasn't like that is they would translate these books and they sound so depressing. The, the very oldest translations they made into European languages of oh, the Buddhist it's not literature. not this and it's not that yeah, and, and it you sounds can't like, do that. Yeah, and it sounds like, oh, what is this, all this negative stuff, you know, what are you doing? But the people who are practicing all this negative stuff seem so happy. So you, you have to wonder, well, where is that, where is that coming from? But this, this emptiness is, uh, well, there's a whole lot of variations on understanding it. But one of the ways to understand it is that when you get rid of all the concepts you have about things, that's emptiness. Um, in, in that, you know, you can think about, well, I'm looking at a picture right now of a pine tree. So let's take a pine tree. And you can, you can think about it and you have all these ideas of pine tree in your mind and what its genus is and where it came from and whether it can be used to make a piano or whatever, you know. But, um, but when you're actually experiencing anything, uh, all that stuff kind of goes out the window. And, and emptiness is like that. It's just approaching things in a very uh, a way that you don't really worry about how to categorize it in your brain. Um, that's one way to look at the concept of emptiness. And then there's emptiness as the sort of experiential side of reality. That's another meaning of emptiness. Before um, the name. Yeah. Before so, the body. Yeah. So you have this experiential side of reality, which is not, well, the ineffable is the word they always use uh, for it. It's something you can't, you can't put a name on because it just doesn't have a name. Um, it's just there. And it's the sort of wellspring of everything, but um, it's also in and of itself nothing. That, that sounds so, so <laughs> spaced out. I'm waiting for the acid to take effect. <laughs> no, but it's truly what, mm-hmm. what it is that... Uh, well, what yeah. it is that you're talking about? Here. Yeah, I mean that, that's definitely true, and I'm, I, I always make a joke out of it because I don't like to sound like a space case. But the actual fact is that's that's what reality is based on. It's this. Uh, Shinru Suzuki had a line where he said, "It's like you know, you go to the, the source. If you ever find the source of a spring, it's just this sort of damp spot on the ground, that really doesn't seem to be anything, but it's a very mystical place." Only you can't stay there for very long. And uh, this is, um, I, I just love that. I wish I could think, uh, remember the quote exactly, but I think it's a really lovely expression of it. Uh, just this, this sort of um, emptiness, which is the source of, of everything, uh, which is nothing that, that's ever left you. It's always there. You just... Uh, you just cover it over and shout it down all the time. Well, and that brings me to my next point, and we're coming to the end of the interview, and I thought that there was something that's very important that I wanted to talk about, is, is that um, a lot of people who uh, are, are the age that you and I were when we first started playing music, you know, uh, me in the 60s and you in the 80s, are, are really struck by boredom and yeah. the diversion that they have to go to, the lengths that they go to to try and mm-hmm. amuse themselves. Would you talk about boredom and diversion and, and uh, leaving, uh, what is it, leaving the truth to the truth? Yeah. Bo- well, boredom is, boredom is something I always talk about, and I, I always send people out these emails sometimes uh, 
saying when they come to my my uh, zazen sittings they should be prepared to be bored because um but when we look at life we you kind of tend to i do and most people do tend to want to look at your life in terms of these exciting peak experiences that you have and here's the great experience and then there's a bunch of dull stuff and then, and then there's another great experience and then a bunch of dull stuff and another great you know whatever and you only remember those big experiences and you think you sort of live your life as traveling from one to another especially this is a lot of young people and wondering why that. you aren't having more of them and yeah yeah, being and, unhappy about that, and yeah, and, and yeah, exactly. You try to get more of them, and you try to run away from anything that's not. And even boring. when you have them, they're not enough. And that's right. Yeah, yeah, and and the people, you know, there's so many tragic stories, especially in the rock world, of people who have these, you know, incredible amounts of money and fame and 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 groupies and the whole bit, the, all everything they want wanted, and then they find that still isn't enough. So that's a big problem. But when you really look at your life, most of it is what you'd classify as boring or mundane. And, and, and you really honestly wouldn't want it any other way. Because if you got it the other way, it's, it's terrible. It's devastating. You know, the people who have had it just find it impossible to keep up with the, with the, the sort of excitement. And the paparazzi they, get very yeah, annoying. and the paparazzi <laughs> and the whole bit. You know, even even the very small amount of fame that I've uh, encountered having written these books is mostly annoying. <laughs> but that's a whole other... Um, but there is no use, yeah. so that's okay. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but, uh, but it brings people more to what you're really yeah. talking about. But the, but, the, but the boredom aspect of life is really, really important. And, and Zen is incredibly boring, really. Zazen practice, you're just sitting there looking at a wall. What could be more boring than that? But it forces you to kind of zoom, zone in on your, your life as it is moment to moment all the time, which isn't these peak experiences. It's just this. Yeah, and that really takes it as, as far as you can until there is no you, Yeah, and then takes it farther than that, even. Yeah, well, you just keep up with it and just start to see through this illusion and and in a way when i say zen is zazen is boring it's boring and it's also fascinating in its own way because you just sit quietly and let things happen and you'd be amazed at all the stuff that you carry around most of which is useless and and how you've been you're constantly getting sucked into these things that really, you know, I watch it for myself on a moment-to-moment basis when I'm sitting and watch my brain just get sucked into these tangents that have nothing to do with anything. And yet and yet, you have this tendency to latch onto the stuff that's very important and you're like driven around and you're, you're chasing it all. And there's nothing to chase. Nothing to chase. And we have chased right to the end of the interview, and thank you so much for talking with us. It's been great fun. And um, you you have a blog that people can go to? Yeah, the the blog is hardcorezen, one word, hardcorezen.blogspot.com, and that'll take you to the other links to the other stuff that I do and my little rants. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Brad. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today. Uh, on attunement, and I've been talking with my guest Brad Warner, who is just coming out with a new book called Sit Down and Shut Up, Punk Rock Commentaries on Buddha, God, Sex, Truth, Death, and Dogen's Treasury of the Right Dharma Eye. 
Well, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.